2: The Economist.
3: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Cukier, senior editor and host of Babbage. This week, it is three decades since the devastating nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. Our Russia correspondent, Arkady Ostrovsky, looks back at what it was like as a 15-year-old growing up in Moscow.
1: And it was my first sense of, of the fragility of the whole system way before anybody had any sense that the Soviet Union was likely to collapse.
3: Later in the program, we return to the scientific and political repercussions of the Chernobyl disaster. But first, we turn to a new technology that holds great promise for the future of vaccines. Vaccination has revolutionized the prevention of disease. But there has always been a snag. You need a specific vaccine to fight a specific disease. Now a group of scientists may change that. With me to discuss a potential for a new era in vaccination is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, who's working on an article for this week's issue. Matt, what is
2: happening? Vaccines are great, but one of the major problems with them is you build a vaccine and that vaccine works against one disease. And then if that disease changes, you run into all kinds of problems because you have to create a new vaccine. And this is all very expensive because you've got lots of vaccines for lots of diseases, which are always changing. So the, there's been a real interest in trying to create a drug that will treat all viruses or hamper all viruses from replicating inside your body. And so what are the
3: researchers doing?
2: Well, they've been looking at a lot of the tactics that have been used to try to create materials that can stop viruses replicating inside your body. And a lot of these materials are great, but they've had a lot of problems. So you can mess with the acidity inside a cell. And if you change the pH just enough so that the virus can't replicate it inside the cell, you've got a solution. Unfortunately, changing the acidity inside cells tends to kill them too. Similarly, there have been tactics to try to mess with the charges on viruses and cells so that the virus can't attach to the cell and inject its DNA in. And it's this latter tactic that the researchers in this new work are actually exploring and finding a way around.
3: And how does the new technique work? How do
2: they find a way around it? The main tactic that's been used to date is using a polymer that's known as polyethylenamine which is great at altering the charges on viruses so they can't bind. Unfortunately, it also has these derivatives of ammonia called amine groups on its ends. And when those amine groups come into contact with healthy cells inside your body, you know, the cells that we're trying to protect from the viruses, it kills them. So that's problematic. But they figured, well, wait a minute. If we can find some way to kind of cover up these amine groups without interfering with the material's ability, this polymer's ability to bind to viruses you would have something that could mess with charges without killing healthy cells. That's what they really got into. They started doing all this computational modeling of what structure would they need to attach to the outside of this polymer such that the amine groups were covered up but that the the material could still bind to viruses. And they found it, presumably. Yeah, they found a sugar called mannose, which is non-toxic and it sits very nicely on the end of this polymer such that the polymer amine groups can't quite nuzzle up to your healthy cells, and it prevents those healthy cells from being poisoned by the polymer. But... The sugar is great, and it still allows the polymer to interact with viruses and alter charge. When will we expect to have the one vaccine that will solve all our problems? Remember, it's not going to be a vaccine anymore because it's not meddling with your immune system in the same way. You're not teaching your immune system to go after a bug. What you're doing is you're introducing an antiviral drug into the system that's going to stop viruses, any virus from being able to go in and replicate inside your cells because they won't be able to make an attachment.
3: I'm sure this is going to wreck something else. What does it break? Because there must be an adverse consequence. Is there a form of virus that I do like to be put into my body that makes me stronger, richer, smarter, more beautiful?
2: They didn't look at any useful viruses. although to be honest, Ken, I can't remember any useful viruses off the top of my head. What I can say is that they tested it on dengue. They t- tested it on influenza. They tested it on Ebola and on herpes. And it worked on all of them. Similarly, they looked at all their cell cultures that they were testing it in, and they found that the toxicity levels for the amount they needed to be able to keep the viruses at bay were nil. The healthy cells stayed healthy regardless of the amount that they needed to be able to treat these viruses.
3: So this is in the lab. When is it going to come into the pharmacy?
2: Well, we're already looking at this team being able to implement it in wipes, for example. So if you have tissue that was exposed to a virus, you could take the material, impregnate a sheet of of tissue with it, and then wipe it over skin. And then you have all these little polymers attached to the surface tissues that would stop viruses from being able to settle in and attach and keep your tissue virus-free. So you already have a sanitary antiviral wipe that would come out of this. Uh, What they're looking at is being able to introduce it into the body after acute exposure. So, for example, if you're a doctor in a hospital that was exposed to Ebola... The hope would be to be able to introduce this material in a medicinal form that you could ingest or inject such that the Ebola, even after you're exposed to it, wouldn't be able to get purchase onto the cells and, and replicate.
3: But why wouldn't we just dose every kid with it and give them a lifelong experience without disease?
2: I imagine that there's probably a cost factor associated with it. I also don't know how toxic this stuff is if you use it for 15 years. They tested it in cell cultures in the lab. Whether or not you use this for five years ongoing and if it has any adverse effects... I don't know. But it would be cost effective that we could throw it into the wiped form and just... That's what they're suggesting for right now. But the intention is absolutely... You may have remembered the avian flu scare from a number of of years ago. There were a bunch of drugs that were being put into the mix where you could take them after you thought you were exposed or after you had traveled. And that would hamper the virus from replicating. This would fall into the same sort of category. Take it and prevent viruses from replicating inside your body.
3: That's really interesting. Thank you, Matt. It was my pleasure. And to all our listeners, don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on our Facebook page at The Economist. Last week, we discussed drones on the show, and we received lots of comments on social media. One on Twitter from Ben Gutteridge. He wrote, wow, ridiculous, a database for drones in the U.S. and not guns. And another Twitter user wrote, drones need third-party insurance, like cars. Perhaps that's Right. Share your views about this week's show. Next, the scientific and political repercussions of the Chernobyl disaster. A new sarcophagus is currently being built around the 200 tons of nuclear fuel, covered in layers of metal and radioactive dust, that still remain at the site. Now we are doing our best to get the project completed by November 2017. With me to discuss the subject is Russia correspondent Arkady Ostrovsky and Tim Cross, one of our science writers. Tim, on April 26, 30 years ago, the explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant caused panic about the safety of nuclear power and cracks in the edifice of Soviet power. How did they deal with it at the time?
0: Well, I guess the first thing we should say um, is it was a it wasn't a nuclear explosion, which a lot of people think it was. It was a steam explosion, which is a sort of fairly ordinary kind of industrial accident that happens a lot. The problem was it blew the lid off the reactor core and there's a lot of graphite inside, which is the nuclear moderator. That caught fire and so you ended up with a huge burning pile of radioactive stuff, basically, that caused a massive plume of smoke, radioactive smoke, that drifted over Ukraine, Belarus and much of Western Europe, depositing radioactive material as it went. When they finally got the fire under control, the next step was to build a sort of containment vessel uh, around this thing because it was the core of a nuclear reactor just exposed to the outside world. So they very hastily put up a big concrete construction, uh, which is commonly known as, as the sarcophagus, but it was really hard to do the work. So it was in- intensely radioactive. People couldn't work on the site for more than you know, even a few minutes at a time. And they had one of these rather chilling euphemisms. They couldn't send robots in to do any of the work. So the human workers who were required to do it were officially referred to as bio-robots.
3: How well was this first sarcophagus built?
0: As you can imagine, when this thing was put up, uh, you know there wasn't exactly time to do a really thorough job. It was incredibly difficult conditions, and no one's been able to go inside to do any maintenance work. So it's been exposed to the elements for 30 years, and it's basically starting to fall apart. The worry is that one day it could collapse completely, and if that were to happen, it wouldn't be anything like as bad as the original accident, but it would kick up a lot of the radioactive dust that's still in there and spread it around the countryside. So what is required to clean it up properly? Well, so the plan is, if you, if you go to Chernobyl, you can see the concrete sarcophagus. And then next to it is a construction site where they're building something called the New Safe Confinement. So this is, if you like, a cover for the cover, and the project's being managed by the European Bank for Reconstruction and, and Development. And the basic idea is you build a gigantic arch, and then you move it along rails so that it covers both the existing shell and the reactor itself, and then you seal it off at both ends. That structure should be good at least for the next 100 years, and that should give people time to start dismantling the inner structure and trying to decide what to do with the sort of mangled radioactive mess that is the core.
3: So what's the cleanup plan
0: theoretically, and wouldn't it just make sense to keep it sealed and not clean it up? There's quite a good argument from physics for waiting a while because the radiation is not the only problem, but it's one of the biggest problems. Uh, and the longer you wait, the less radiation there'll be. The, ra- the radioactive products will decay, and the most intensely radioactive stuff decays the quickest. So if you wait fifty, sixty, seventy years, the problem gets easier for every year that you wait. In other words, we should just keep it sealed. There's certainly a line of thinking that that, that goes that way that we should at least keep it sealed for a while. And I mean, if you're the Ukrainian government, once this this massive problem is is sealed away, supposedly for a hundred years, you know, you might think you have better things to do with with your money.
1: Arkady. Well, one would hope so, although one should never underestimate the ability of the Ukrainian government, any Ukrainian government, to spend somebody else's money and make massive profit on the side. So, unfortunately, everything we know about Ukrainian government suggests that they might uh, not go along with the easiest or most efficient option, but the one that allows them to um, divvy up some of the money. So that cues up
3: nicely the issue of the politics. One of the problems for science in evaluating the catastrophe has been that the former Soviet Union covered up a lot of information about the impact. Arkady, you were 15 years old at the time, living in Moscow. What can you tell us about the reactions at that time?
1: Fear. Uh, Fear of the unknown, fear of, you know, this invisible sort of radiation, poison, because nobody really had any sense of what the impact was going to be. Uh, All that the foreign radio stations were reporting is that the levels of radiation and radioactive material uh, that has been released into the air was 400 times uh, the level of Hiroshima. Um, so we had two girls in our in our classroom who came from, from Chernobyl. And there was this, you know, sense that these are the two girls who came from the other world, from the other side. They've seen something. They've experienced something none of us ever have. And it was my first sense of of the fragility of the whole system way before anybody had any sense that the Soviet Union was likely to collapse. What were the political reactions? You have to remember this is happening one year after Gorbachev comes to power and proclaims the supremacy of human life and human values over all else. And that proclamation, that main slogan of Gorbachev's perestroika which was intended to give a new lease of life to the Soviet Union, that main slogan and main aim of perestroika came to its biggest test with Chernobyl. We didn't know, actually, uh, it happened at the time. The first information came from uh, listening to foreign radio stations, um, which were um, muffled by the KGB. But the information was seeping through, and it came from Sweden, saying there's been increased level of radiation. The Swedes actually started looking at their own nuclear plants first, thinking that one of their reactors was leaking. But it quickly transpired it was coming from the Soviet Union.
3: So a lot of information was covered up at the time, Tim, what does that mean for science?
0: Well, the main problem that caused was it made it even harder than it already is and harder than it needed to be to work out what the eventual impact of this was going to be. We had this cloud of radiation spreading across Europe, and obviously people want to know what the effects are and what they've been. And the truth is, even now, 30 years later, it's still very controversial, and we don't really have a really firm firm idea. So for two days after the disaster, nothing officially was said. Um, The people who were evacuated from Pripyat were told they would be able to return, um, and they still haven't 30 years later. And then you had things like pressure put on doctors in later years to classify things that were probably symptoms of radiation poisoning as other things. We don't know what the final death toll is going to be. We know it's going to be large, but we don't know exactly how large. And the lack of openness and the cover-ups are one big part of of that.
3: This also had political consequences. Arkady, tell us more.
0: Yes. I mean, one
1: one thing we do know in terms of the political impact is that the Soviet Union ceased to exist five years after the Chernobyl disaster. And it did have a lot to do with that. How so? What it showed, um, and what we know now from the minutes of the Politburo, even at the time, that even Gorbachev didn't have full information about what was happening. And the system was so closed that it became absolutely apparent to the, uh, to Gorbachev and to leaders of the country that they needed to open it up. And so the whole project of glassness or openness of the media and the freedom of speech really started in earnest only after the Chernobyl disaster. It kind of showed that they had to open the channels of information because if they didn't, actually terrible things might, terrible things might happen. It was the openness of the media and glassness and the pressure on the system to start telling the truth that actually withheld, withdrew one of the main pillars the Soviet Union rested upon, which was lies and propaganda. And once that pillar was removed from the system, the whole thing, the whole construction came crashing down. Now, you were just there last week. What did you see? It's full of tourists and journalists and people who are sort of aficionados for disaster tourism uh, who come there as stalkers, as characters from Andrei Tarkovsky's famous uh, film, The Stalker, um, exploring this frozen piece of the Soviet Union, what once used to be uh, the promise of the communist utopia and what turned out to be its, um, its gravestone.
3: That's incredible. Thank you, Arcadi. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
2: The Economist.